The other day I was talking to somebody in my office and she asked me, so what about Jesus? I said, well, well, what about Jesus? And she said, well, you know, the whole thing in the creed where it says he's the only son of God. Do you really think that's true? I mean, you know, what about the Buddha? So I gave her my standard answer. This is the same answer I've been giving for, I don't know, 25 years. I said, it's like this. Um, imagine it's, it's 90 degrees outside and you've been working in the sun all day and your mouth is parched. And so you go to the ice cream shop and they hand you this beautiful, let's say, mint chocolate chip ice cream cone. And as soon as you take that first bite, you're like, this is the best ice cream in the world. It's, it's, you see, it's, it's not as if you've tasted every ice cream flavor in the world and measured them by some objective criteria, and then you've arrived at the sober judgment that, let's say, mint chocolate chip is the best ice cream in the world, which it is, by the way. Uh, no, you're in the throes of an ecstatic experience. That's what religious language expresses. It's a love song. It's a poem. It's not meant to be a statement of objective fact, which is especially true when you're talking about God because in God, there can be no objectivity because actually there's no object, only subject. Meditate on that for a while. So anyway, that's the answer I've been giving for years and it seemed to help my friend and I was feeling pretty good about myself and wise and, I don't know, kind of Buddhist-y, you know. <laughs> and, and then I sat down to write this sermon and um, I realized there's another answer to that question that is actually more historically accurate. So if you're willing to put up with a little history lesson, I'd like to share that with you. Is that okay with you? Please say yes, thank you. The history lesson starts with this reading from the book of Acts. Paul has this vision of a man begging him to come to Macedonia. And so he does, and he ends up in a city called Philippi, where he meets a woman there named Lydia, who is a dealer in purple cloth. Well, the city of Philippi was located in what is now modern Greece. It was named after Philip II, who was king of Macedonia 400 years before Paul arrived on the scene. It came to be named after Philip because in the year 356 BC, the residents of that area found themselves at war with neighboring tribes from Thracia. They were fighting for control over gold and silver mines in the hills nearby. So they asked their king, Philip II, to come to their aid, and Philip arrived, slaughtered the Thracians, and then, of course, took all the silver and gold mines for himself. Philip expanded the mines, and as a result, he became massively wealthy. This allowed him to pour money into his army, and soon he had one of the mightiest armies in the world. Philip was a brilliant campaigner, extremely ambitious for conquest, 
But he was nothing compared to his son, Alexander, who became known as Alexander the Great. When Alexander's father was assassinated, some kind of love triangle thing, they think, Alexander inherited the kingdom and expanded it to the furthest corners of the known world, including, of course, Paul's home in Palestine. Without that gold and silver from Philippi, it's doubtful that Philip would have been able to build the army that he built. So it could be said that it's because of Philippi that the Jews were conquered by Alexander. It was because of Philippi that Greek became the dominant language and culture of Jerusalem. And it was because of Philippi that Israel deepened its culture of guerrilla warfare and religious resistance against the Greeks and the foreign gods. Because as you remember, it was during the occupation of Israel by the descendants of Alexander's army that stories began to be told of a messiah who had come from on high with a host of avenging angels to rout the Greek infidels and restore the kingdom of David. So imagine, if you will, how Paul must have felt walking through the gates of Philippi. Because Philippi did not just represent the heart of Hellenistic culture, it also represented the birth of the Roman Empire because it was at Philippi that the great battle took place between, on the one side, Brutus and Cassius, who had assassinated Julius Caesar, and on the other side, Mark Antony and Octavius. Mark Antony and Octavius had set out with several legions to go after the assassins of Julius Caesar, and they met at Philippi. So it was because of what happened at Philippi that Rome fell into dictatorship. Before Philippi, there were still Romans who believed in the ideals of a democratic Roman Republic. After the Battle of Philippi, the last bit of resistance to military dictatorship was crushed. So, it was because of this victory at Philippi that Mark Antony, Mark Antony poured a fortune into that city, constructing enormous and fabulous memorials and temples to his great victory. And so, it was because of Philippi and the powers that the emperor could then claim for himself that the cult of the emperor was made possible. Because of Philippi, it became acceptable for a Roman emperor to mint coins with the phrase, Son of God, printed beneath his image, and to construct temples that would be built for sacrifices made to honor the emperor's divinity. So it was because of Philippi then that pious Jews in Jerusalem were being forced at the point of spears to make sacrifices to the emperor. It was because of Philippi that anyone who dared to proclaim, say, a poor itinerant preacher and healer as the true and only son of God, those people would be seen as traitors and enemies of the empire. Indeed, it's not too great a stretch to say that it was because of Philippi that Jesus was executed. 
And so it would be that as the beginning calls forth the ending, as the Alpha and the Omega merge into a cosmic history that includes us all, so it would be that 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion, Nero would begin a massive slaughter of Christians that would sweep up Paul himself. So for Paul, Philippi was not just another town on his bus tour. He was an extremely well-educated man and would have known all of this history about Philippi as any American schoolchild can tell you about Lexington and Concord and Philadelphia and Gettysburg. To travel to Philippi was for him to travel into the very belly of the Roman beast. This is the place where it all started and in a strange way, this is the place where it would all end because it is in this trip to Philippi that Paul brings the gospel for the first time to what would become Western Europe. And this gospel begins with this simple and extremely dangerous, subversive thought, which he proclaimed at the very birthplace of the empire. Caesar is not the Son of God. And he proclaims it to a woman who sells purple cloth. Now, who purchases purple cloth in the Roman Empire? There's only one class of people in the Roman Empire that were allowed to wear purple, the imperial class. Years later, writing from prison, awaiting his execution, Paul would write that famous letter to his friends in Philippi, the same friends that he met in this story that we read today. He doesn't know if he will live to see the next day or not, so his message is fashioned like a dart aimed at the heart of the empire. He articulates the very core of the gospel, which is all about this subversive humility, which is completely at odds with the emperor's reign of brutality and pride. Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And then he goes on, Let the same mind be in you that is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, read, as the emperors do, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, read, the last thing that the emperor would ever do. Being born in human likeness and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, read the sentence that's carried out against traitors to the emperor. Therefore, Paul concludes, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, read, not the emperor, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. Paul's challenge to the cult of the emperor could not have been more direct. So when Paul imagined every knee bending to the name of Jesus, there was a little more to that than deciding that Jesus was like the most delicious ice cream. And he certainly was not thinking about the Buddha or any other world religions. There's no evidence that Paul ever even heard of the Buddha. The last thing on his mind was some kind of academic postmodern exercise in comparative religions. That is a totally modern construct. No, Paul was doing something far more serious. He was confronting the most deadly force on the planet. He was staking his life and lives of his followers on this proclamation that the emperor had no clothes, that there's nothing sacred about armies clashing in night, that God does not rule by military domination, political conquest, or brute force. God rules by humility and love, a sentiment, by the way, that the Buddha would have highly approved of. So if you're looking for God, Paul says, look among the poor, the meek, the humble, the loving servants of mercy. There you will find Jesus, barefoot and hungry, a begging bowl by his side, sharing everything he has. You know, dictators will come and go, like Philip and Caesar, they live by the sword, and like Philip and Caesar, they tend to die by the sword. But Jesus lives on. He cannot be killed. And the same is true for all of those who follow the path of love. Whether they're Christians or Buddhists or Hindus or pagans or Sufis, Muslims, Jews, even atheists, when we live for love, there's no power on earth that can silence us. So on this Memorial Day, let's take a little bit of time to honor those men, and wo those men and women who gave their lives for our freedom. I'm thinking especially today of my own father who led a small mortar platoon during the Battle of the Bulge. And let's also remember you don't need to carry a gun to strike a blow against a dictator. Sometimes you need to carry the cross.